I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. And we are two Shakespeare nerds who decided to make a podcast about our love for Shakespeare. In this podcast, we will tackle as many dimensions to Shakespeare's plays as we can by looking at the text, examining the historical context in which it was written, and how the text is viewed through modern lenses of feminism, racism, classism, colonialism, nationalism, ableism, all of the isms. We will discuss how his plays shaped both the past and present, and, as actors, how his plays can be responsibly performed today, all while trying our best to approach his works without giving in to bardolatry. So, Shakespeare anyone? Hello listeners, this is Courtney. Elise and I are so thrilled to continue bringing episodes of Shakespeare Anyone to listeners like you for free. We do this out of our love for Shakespeare, theater making, scholarship, and decentering dead white men. We put a lot of hard work into research, recording, editing, and generally producing a podcast. With that said, I'm here to remind you all that we have a Patreon page if you want to support our current work and our future goals that we believe Patreon will help us achieve. We've created a variety of support levels and continue to create exclusive bonus content for our patrons on a monthly basis. Our bonus content so far includes Shakespeare Stuff We Loved This Month posts, where we share the Shakespeare-related products we are obsessing over. Not only that, but we already launched bonus episodes. One is an extension on our conversation with Dr. Simone Chess about John Lilly's Galatea and early modern trans studies. And the second is a conversation with special guest Stephanie from Protest Too Much podcast, in which we review Joel Cohen's Macbeth starring Denzel Washington and Frances McDormand. Elise and I also discuss Shakespeare-adjacent content, like movies, TV shows, books, to name a few, and share those conversations exclusively to Patreon. These are incredible conversations you can unlock as a patron. We also have plans for additional bonus episodes, including more special guests, more film reviews, and even an Ask Us Anything. Distinguished patrons even receive exclusive voting power and snail mail. If you would like to join us and support the production of this podcast, or just check out the Shakespeare-themed names we've given the support levels, head to patreon.com slash shakespeareanyone. The link will also be in our episode descriptions. And if you like what you hear, Elise and I would greatly appreciate it if you could rate, review, and follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Your review might even make it on an episode. When you're done, be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter, and then tell a friend. Word of mouth is our best form of advertisement. Thank you for listening and all of the support you give us and the podcast. Now, onto the episode. Hi, Elise. Hi, Courtney. How are you today? I'm doing okay. How are you doing? I'm a little tired, but I'm, yeah, yeah, I I feel like most everyone out in listener land is tired, so (laughs) that's like the general consciousness or whatever of most people, but I'm here. I'm excited to talk about today's episode. Yeah. What are we talking about? Yeah. Um, I'm also very excited. I know that this is a topic that is near and dear to both of our hearts. Today, we are going to be talking about Shakespeare and climate change. Mm -hmm. And 
we're going to start off with a little bit of background about the climate change that Shakespeare was experiencing during his own time and how that impacted some of his plays. And then we are going to be joined in conversation with Sidney Schwint to discuss more about the actual intersection of Shakespeare and climate change, both in the text and in production today. Mm -hmm. And uh, we'll wrap it all up uh, by talking a little bit more about if today's conversation inspires you, some additional resources that we have for you. And I think it's worth sharing, Courtney, you have a great way of phrasing this, that we are not here to be doom and gloom about the climate. Mm -hmm. You call it climate bloomerism. Yeah. The opposite of climate doomerism is climate bloomerism. Yeah. There is still hope that we can turn the tide and collectively work to bring the planet back to a healthy place. Right. And with that said, tell me more about the research you did into climate change during Shakespeare's time. Yeah. So Shakespeare actually was living right smack in the middle of what is called the Little Ice Age, which was from around 1300 to 1850. And it was a time of general cooling over Western Europe. And my source speaks more to the state of the climate in the 17th century. So right at the tail end of Shakespeare's life. But all of this is progressive. So mm -hmm. I'm sure that these instances that we are seeing in the 1600s uh, were something that Shakespeare was experiencing in the late 1500s as well. I read a chapter from Gregory Parker's book, Global Crisis, War, Climate Change, and Catastrophe in the 17th Century. This chapter is specifically about the Little Ice Age. And similar to us now where we're noticing, I mean, Elise, you and I are in California, and we notice mm -hmm. that there are far more wildfires than there were, at least from when I was a kid, we now have a wildfire season. Right. And... Uh, other parts of the globe experience flooding, drought, more tsunamis, just a lot of climate phenomena that are happening much more frequently than they did before. It's completely mm -hmm. normal for the earth to experience drought, fires, all of that. But it's the consistency with which it's happening that is concerning for people in the climate justice world. And the accelerated rate, yeah. right? I remember when we were kids, you know, being in California, El Nino years, La Nina years. Mm -hmm. And I remember that being said. And I feel like we're not even really able to rely on that as a weather pattern. Mm -hmm. So it, we will be in an El Nino year and the weather patterns that we would expect aren't necessarily the same. Exactly. And in 1614, a Swiss botanist, historian, and archivist Renward Sysat noted that the past few years had been different from what was expected, so he decided to, quote, record the same as a service and a favor to future generations because, unfortunately, on account of our sins, for some time now the years have shown themselves to be more rigorous and severe in the recent past, and we have seen deterioration amongst living things, not only among mankind and the animal world, but also in the earth's crops and produce, unquote. And when I read that, I was like, oh, that sounds so familiar. The early modern climate had been changing over all of the continents. In the global north, all of Europe experienced especially cold winter in 1620 to 21. And Europe experienced a 
quote-unquote year without a summer in 1628. Mm. In the global south, some examples of climate change include West Africa had drought from 1614 to 19. The Philippines experienced extreme famine due to drought in the early 1640s. The Nile River fell to its lowest recorded level due to drought in 1641. And unusual weather patterns continued throughout the 17th century. I'm not going to list all of them because there are a lot of examples that Parker gives in this chapter. And mm -hmm. I think it's just exhaustive to continue to list tragedy after tragedy. Yeah. But overall, northern regions of the world experienced excessive flooding and extreme cold resulting in a bad harvest, famine, and freezing to death. The southern regions of the world experienced excessive drought and heat resulting in bad harvests and famines. And not a fun fact, in 1649, the Thames River froze over, like fully froze over. And what? Yeah. Yeah. And this, this part is kind of funny. The barge carrying Charles I's body to his resting place after his execution had to try to avoid ice on the ground as they were trying to bring him to his burial place. Mm -hmm. But that's not normal for London. And weather patterns became more extreme into the mid and late 17th century. In 1675, most of the Northern Hemisphere again experienced a year with no summer. And early modern people were rightly concerned with climate change. Most people's livelihood was tied to the environment through farming. It was mostly an agricultural society. And like I said, these records are from the 1600s, but I cannot imagine that climate catastrophes weren't around in the 1590s when Shakespeare was writing. Mm -hmm. There's evidence in Shakespeare's plays of people switching to burning coal because they have run out of wood for fires. And like we've also talked about like with the pastoral, the change from subsistence farming to agriculture as an industry and the changes that also, you know, potentially led to that, the climate impact because of changes in what you needed to survive in a colder climate. Yeah. And I also like that you mentioned the the sheep because most countries by this time, by Shakespeare's time and after, were dependent on one staple crop. So for England, wheat was the staple. And I imagine if you are dependent on one staple crop and your harvests are not yielding uh, high mm -hmm. amounts of wheat, then that can negatively affect all aspects of your society because that's what you mostly use to eat. That's what people make money off of. And one thing that Stephen Kaplan, a scholar in the history of food, specifically bread and grain, wrote about the negative impact of climate change on this agriculture style of being dependent on one staple crop was, quote, cereal dependence conditioned every phase of social life. Grain was the pilot sector of the economy. Beyond its determinant role in agriculture, directly and indirectly, grain shaped the development of commerce and industry, regulated employment, and provided a major source of revenue for the state, the church, the nobility, and large segments of the third estate. Because most of the people were poor, the quest for subsistence preoccupied them relentlessly. No issue was more urgent, more pervasively felt, and more difficult to resolve than the matter of grain provisioning. The dread of shortage and hunger haunted society. Unquote. So, as the climate is changing the, the yield for harvests, mm -hmm. That ends up becoming a huge stressor for early modern life. And that is especially obvious for poorer families. If there was a shortage, families were not certain they could feed themselves. And if costs go up due to the shortage, 
then families had less money to spend on other industries because more of their wages, which were still not going up, were being spent on food. Mm -hmm. And so if people couldn't spend in other markets, those workers lost their jobs. And, you know, it's this terrible cyclical thing that's a result of early capitalism, you know? Yeah, it's, I don't want to like jump ahead too Mm -hmm. much, but I just want to like, there are so many parallels to what you are saying and to my reading, which is stories from the last 20 or so years of the fight for climate justice. Mm -hmm. So I'll put a pin in that. We'll put a pin in this. Yeah. So for the little ice age, the similarly to like the plague, Mm -hmm. many early modern people attributed climate change to the heavens and thought that this was because God wasn't happy with them and the state of mankind on earth. This is a peccatogenic outlook and Pecatum is Latin for sin. Mm. So from this outlook, people in power were scapegoating the heck out of people and groups because like the plague, they didn't know what was causing climate change. They didn't know why they were experiencing a year without a summer. You know, that's so strange Mm -hmm. to go from expecting certain seasons and then all of a sudden you have no summer or like it's totally snowy in places it's not supposed to be or you get way too much rain and then you can't actually harvest because you're flooded. The yeah. Yeah. I'm not a farmer, so if I'm getting certain technical aspects of this wrong, please don't hate me. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there are certain conditions that uh crops mm-hmm. need in order to have good yields. So these are some examples of some of the scapegoated groups from the early modern era. Sometimes people were directly blamed. So in 1648, a letter from the new president of the Council of Castile wrote, quote, The principal cause of the calamities that afflict this kingdom are the public sins and injustices committed, and punishing the former and administering justice with due rectitude and speed are the most important ways to oblige our Lord to provide the successes that this monarchy needs so much, unquote. So they're the cause of the uh, strange weather patterns. Mm-hmm. Another one ties directly to our research, and that's the English Parliament in 1642. This is an important year for theater. We've talked about it before. Right. (laughs) Wrote, quote, Whereas the distressed state of Ireland steeped in her own blood and the distracted states of England threatened with a cloud of blood by a civil war, call for all possible means to appease and avert the wrath of God. And whereas public sports do not well agree with public calamities, nor public stage plays with the seasons of humiliation, being spectacles of pleasure, too commonly expressing lascivious mirth and levity, all public stage plays shall cease, unquote. So stage plays were blamed. Mm-hmm. In 1648, the magistrates of London ordered, quote, to pull down and demolish all theaters to have all actors publicly whipped and define all playgoers because plays tended to the high provocation of God's wrath and displeasure which lies heavy upon this kingdom, unquote. Witchcraft and sorcery was brought back into the mix. You had people being accused, especially on the continental Europe. It's like, oh, the person over there, that lady, she's the cause of our crops failing. She's a witch. Sodomites were also blamed. So there was a lot of scapegoating going on. But there were some people in early modern England who were closer to figuring out what was causing climate change in the Little Ice Age, a much more accurate explanation for climate change had to do with sunspots, or at least like there was a correlation that you could see with sunspots. Telescopes in the 17th century allowed astronomers to observe and track the number of sunspots or dark spots on the sun. 
astronomers around the world made observations on over 8,000 days between 1645 and 1715, and they saw virtually no sunspots. The grand total of sunspots observed in those 70 years scarcely reached 100. I guess the importance of pointing this out is that, like, through all of this, climate change was important enough to early modern society that people were scapegoating people for causing changing weather patterns, and astronomers were trying to figure out, like, what the heck is going on? Maybe if we look at the sun, we can try to figure out why we aren't getting as much sun, why um, it's so cold here, and mm-hmm. you know why our livelihoods are changing. And the astronomers like were on the right path, but they were incorrect. Early modern astronomers argued that more sunspots would cause cooler temperatures, when in fact, fewer sunspots cause cooler temperatures, which suggested that there was a reduction in solar energy to the Earth. Mm-hmm. One last thing to like wrap up relates to what you had said earlier. You're like, oh, El Nino. In early modern England, this El Nino reversal of, you know, like the winds. During a normal year, the surface air pressure in the equatorial region of the Pacific is higher in the east than in the west. In cooler years, the pattern reverses, and that ends up having an effect on weather conditions. And today, or in 2015 when the book was written, the reversal happens every five years. In the 17th century, the reversal happened twice as often. So more often, early modern people were experiencing these weather pattern reversals. So, um, you know, the early modern people didn't know exactly why climate change was happening. And we had, you know, Mm -hmm. in retrospect, we can look and see like, oh, El Nino weather patterns. uh, It's triggering higher volcanic eruptions and it's adding more Mm -hmm. sulfur dioxide into the stratosphere and making certain parts of the world have more sun and less sun. But they didn't know that. They just knew that it was happening. And like Shakespeare knew that. Shakespeare was aware Mm -hmm. of this. And And it was, yeah. Mm -hmm. I think like a big takeaway, um, like you just said, is that in the early modern era, this was worth caring about. Yeah. They sure were wrong in the directions they went. Mm -hmm. But it was worth trying to find a reason and trying to find a solution. Yes. There was a consideration of like a normal range of weather shift. You might have more rain or less rain, but your like rainy season doesn't change mm-hmm. versus like year without a summer. That's a huge difference in climate behavior than we didn't get as much rain in February as we typically get, or we got a little bit more rain. Right. And what I what I gathered from like the first half of my reading was that Enough people were noticing this and finding it odd, finding it strange that there are so many instances where, like, people are archiving this, people are writing in their letters to friends Mm -hmm. about the bizarre weather, about the weather patterns changing so drastically. And I don't have time to, like, share all of them, but that book that I read gives so many examples of things that were going on all around the world. So my reading was about essentially the effects of climate change today and where we're seeing them. And one thing that really struck me about your research and what was happening in the early modern period was the people who were affected the most by these climate changes were people in poorer classes of society, farmers and poor people. Right. And the book that I read, uh, which is Climate Justice by Mary Robinson, focuses on um, stories of people who are from communities that are being more directly impacted by the climate change that we are seeing today. You were talking about the harvests and the importance to farmers, and I thought uh, there's multiple stories that are like that in this book. One specifically is from 
this woman from a pastoralist community in Chad. They have, for hundreds of years, herded red longhorn cattle and gotten to milk these cattle. And she remembers in her lifetime how much milk her grandmother was able to get from these cows. and They were able to use that to trade for cereal, other food, money, and also use it for themselves. And in her lifetime, there's now a scarcity. The cows are not producing as much milk. Um, And that's the thing that got her involved in the climate change movement once she learned what climate change was. Being from her community, she wasn't as familiar with it. And even she says that even her, her elders were very convinced that it was God, that they were being punished by God. And through a series of life events, she ended up going to university and learning about climate change. And now she is able to fight for them. And she they very much believe that she is going to bring them an answer to things that they are experiencing. Mm-hmm. Anyway, this is a great book. And I also want to like share her definition because we've thrown the phrase around climate justice a few times. And I think we continue to do so in our conversation with Sydney. And Mary Robinson, I think, has a great definition for that. She says, quote, the fight against climate change is fundamentally about human rights and securing justice for those suffering from its impact. Vulnerable countries and communities that are the least culpable for the problem. They must also be able to share the burdens and benefits of climate change fairly. I call it climate justice, putting people at the heart of the solution, unquote. Mm-hmm. Sounds about right. And we are going to now share our conversation with Sydney Schwint about how climate change, climate justice, and Shakespeare intersect. Sydney Schwint wears many hats in the theater world. She is an actor, director, fight director, and educator. She is a resident artist and climate justice advocate on the engagement team with the San Francisco Shakespeare Festival. She is the program developer with the Society of American Fight Directors and is on the advisory board for the Same Boat Theater Collective. She has taught movement and stage combat at the American Conservatory Theater's graduate program and Indiana University. Sydney recently directed A Midsummer Night's Dream with San Francisco Shakespeare Festival's Shakespeare on Tour. It is running through mid-May 2023 all across California. And if you are in California, you can check out www.sfshakes.org for a public performance near you. Summer 2023, Sydney will be playing Beatrice and Dogberry in a six-person Much Ado About Nothing with Spark Theaters Shakespeare in the Vineyards in Livermore, California. Now, here's our conversation with Sydney. Hi, Sydney. Hello. How are you today? I'm doing pretty good. How are you? I'm doing okay. Pretty good. Mm-hmm. Courtney? Yeah, same over here. It's been a pretty good day so far. A little bit of rain for me and some sunshine. Lots of rain here. So much rain here. Sydney, speaking of the climate, we are so excited to have you on to talk about your work at the intersection of Shakespeare and climate change activism. But first things first, we ask all of our guests, what was your first experience with Shakespeare? Ah, I really lucked out, actually. My first experience with Shakespeare was doing Shakespeare. It was my first experience with theater as well. So I kind of had this like beautiful meld of magic and getting to do A Midsummer Night's Dream in fourth grade, you know, at a a slightly abridged version and 
For those that don't know me, I'm quite tall and I got to play Hermia for the one and only time in my life. And I was already a foot taller than Helena and it was amazing. There was glitter, there was fairies, it was beautiful. And because it was, you know, getting up and and being physical with it, I never had that fear of Shakespeare that oftentimes is put in when we just study it from books. I just had the like, this is fun. This is me playing with my friends. This is exciting. There are donkeys. There are fairies. I get to wear costumes. This is magic. <laughs> so that was, that was my my first experience with Shakespeare. Pure joy. <laughs> I love that. Also, like, way to go fourth grade teacher to like not shy away from teaching nine-year-olds, 10-year-olds Shakespeare. <laughs> I know. Thank you, Mr. Lyons. You set me on a great course. Really appreciate it. <laughs> So you are a multi-hyphenate, but for today's purposes, you are specifically a theater artist and a climate justice advocate. Can you tell us about some of your work for anyone unfamiliar with how a climate justice advocate might work within the theater? Yeah. So to really get that, I want to talk a little bit about just storytelling. For me, storytelling is at the forefront of cultural change. That is where we decide what the world around us looks like, is through narrative. It is our chance to experience empathy and to get to walk in other people's shoes. And theater is a beautiful opportunity to do that. And so we have an opportunity through storytelling and through theater to open people's eyes to different worlds that they don't know about or that they don't experience in their everyday life. And so Not only are we going to explore other peoples, but then we get to expand what our community looks like. Our community is not just our neighbors and the people directly around us, but it's our plants. It's the animals around us. It's our waterways. It's the air. So how do we include those in our storytelling? And there's a huge opportunity in theater. But then you might be like, okay, so then Shakespeare. Shakespeare doesn't necessarily write from the point of view of birds. But actually... (laughs) He kind of does, (laughs) because there's so much beautiful language through Shakespeare about our natural world that we have this beautiful opportunity through it to explore that. And what does that look like? And so there's a lot of ways to connect our environment with Shakespeare. Yeah, and we've talked about Midsummer Night's Dream specifically being a play that Shakespeare did write climate change into. Mm -hmm. It is taking place during a period where the seasons are out of order and they aren't looking like they normally do. And what does that do to the story of this play? What is the impact of that on the characters in this play? I personally would love to see a Midsummer Night's Dream set at wintertime, like Mm. It being summer, but everybody's dressed for cold weather because that's what's described in Titania's speech. Mm-hmm. But with that idea of like it is in Shakespeare and he does give us this language about nature and specifically with Midsummer Night's Dream. How do you think that specifically Shakespeare plays can be used to teach or start those conversations about climate change or as you were speaking of the idea of our community and how we can impact and support the broader community which includes our world. Yeah, well, Shakespeare is an amazing cultural currency. You know, it's like one of those things, sitting and watching TV, I love to just point out all the different Shakespeare references, which I'm sure the two of you do as well. <laughs> yep. <laughs> as yep. The common Shakespeare nerd pastime. And mm-hmm. it's amazing how many there are. And so, like, to understand Shakespeare, 
is to get all sorts of references throughout our culture. So we have this kind of emblem, the the bardolatry, which I know you all have talked about on your podcast before. Mm -hmm. That's there. Mm -hmm. So why not like take that and then use it for something else completely Mm -hmm. different. And through that, like I was talking about before, we have the opportunity to delve into his natural language and his you know, a variety of different plays where we talk about nature, where we talk about the environment and its impacts on people. And Midsummer is an awesome one for that. But there are references also through climate change through so many of his different plays. Like there's a reference in Merry Wives of Windsor to what I, I believe it's people moving from burning timber in their homes to burning coal. And that's because they over harvested timber in their area. And so that you know, Shakespeare's talking about the impacts of humans on his environment mm-hmm, throughout mm-hmm. all of his plays as well. So if we just lift that up and be like, hey, we also make an impact on our planet. And it's a lot worse than in Shakespeare's day because there's a lot more of us <laughs> and we're doing a lot more terrible things. So let's let's just take a look at that and shine a mirror on nature. I, I love that you brought up that Hamlet quote of holding a mirror up to nature, not just mm-hmm. being acting, but being like representations of nature in the theater as well. Have you incorporated climate activism into theatrical work you've worked on? And if so, how? Yeah. So I just had the wonderful opportunity of directing A Midsummer Night's Dream this past spring. Um, And it's with the San Francisco Shakespeare Festival. It's still running right now till May, which is super exciting. But it goes to schools and community centers and libraries all across the state. With Midsummer, there's such an opportunity because there is already the personification of nature through mm-hmm. the fairies. And so what does that natural world look like? So because this particular production was going to schools, I wanted students to be able to recognize their natural world. So our fairies were California flora and fauna. Particularly, we, we kind of, um, in our own nerdy world, went through that Titania was more in charge of the flora and mm-hmm. Oberon more in charge of fauna. And you can see that in how the fairies are represented. There are poppies and lupine throughout the play. And Puck is a Sierra Nevada red fox. Mm. Mm. But there are little images throughout the show in the set and on costume pieces where, where students go, oh, I recognize that's a redwood right there. There we we get some flowers that I see in my backyard and that way that there is a a recognition of environment through that. The forgeries of jealousy speech, which we've kind of tiptoed around talking about Mm -hmm. already is where Titania really delves into. Our climate is totally changed. Here are all these examples. The nine men Morris filled up with mud. Ah, all these horrible Mm -hmm. things are happening. We are their parents. We are their original. In this particular speech was really where I invested a lot of our energy, where this was the inspiration for the fairy world and that everything was changed and it's affecting everyone. So as Titania is speaking this, our fairies are, they're feeling pain for each Mm -hmm. different thing that she mentions. And we kind of pinpointed different words and phrases for them to articulate through their body so that there are physical changes. And now these are things that aren't necessarily like, hey, in your face, climate change. But I really don't think that's how you get people involved. 
mm-hmm. is it needs to be subtextual. It needs to be something that you can see and feel and experience and care about rather than like, hey, I'm going to preach to the choir some more. And that's another way that I think Shakespeare is incredibly important for this journey is that you're going to get all sorts of people who want to go see a Shakespeare play who don't want to go talk necessarily about environmentalism. But when we layer in these different themes throughout the work that we're doing, we have the ability to reach more people than, say, if I'm doing a play that says climate change is bad because it's just not going to be interesting to certain people. And I'm only going to get people that are already on board with my message. But if you can kind of layer in these different storytelling narratives, particularly in Shakespeare, you're going to reach a whole bunch of people that you might not reach. And I personally believe that theater should not answer questions. It should ask questions so that you're not leaving with like, oh, this is the way the world should be. I should leave the theater going, oh, that made me think this. And now I have another question about that. And now I'm interested in something that I didn't know before. I'm interested in a different way of being, a different culture that I have nothing to do with. I'm interested in these plants, these animals, these creatures, my waterways. Where does that happen? You know, I'm, I'm interested mm-hmm. in my world. And so that's what I think you should be leaving with. I totally don't mean this as a pun, but I think it's really helpful to think of theater can be planting the seed. Like, again, don't mean the pun. I love the pun. Mean the pun. It's beautiful. Elise is full of the pun. I'm full of them. But that it's the planting the seed and it's kids recognizing creatures and plants that they have seen before. And maybe in seeing it connected to this play that they're seeing, it makes them, you know, go do a project on it, especially when you're at an age where, I mean, what people can be inquisitive at any age. But when you're at an age where you're presented with so many opportunities to drive your own learning and to learn more about the natural world, you're in science classes that is something we don't necessarily get as grown-ups. Well, and there's also a beautiful opportunity here as well where to care about the environment or to care about the climate crisis, you have to first care about the environment. Mm-hmm. And through story, we get that empathetic nature where we start caring about other things and we can fall in love with characters and fall in love with creatures And start to get that sense of wonder Mm -hmm. about the natural world. And there's actually, there's a problem right now through climate education that's really interesting that kind of blew my mind when I first learned about it. That was, we're starting to introduce students too young to climate change. And not because they shouldn't know about it, but because they haven't had the opportunity to have a sense of wonder about their place yet. They're being told that their trees are dying before they even know what kind of tree it is. Mm -hmm. So they're kind of like being introduced to the disaster before getting even the groundwork to care about the planet first. So we need to cultivate a sense of wonder in people before Mm. they're going to take action. Mm. need to understand why I should care about a redwood to want to save a redwood. Mm -hmm. Why are whales so important to the ocean? They're keystone species. We should learn that they're amazing and beautiful and listen to whale songs. And then I'm going to care a lot more about saving them so like cultivating that sense of wonder is a thing that we can do in the theater too you know get people interested but also get people caring and being like oh you know puck was it was a fox i love foxes maybe i should care about foxes maybe i should, mm-hmm. maybe I should look into fox conservancies mm-hmm. maybe i should 
learn more about like what specifically is affecting foxes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm thinking about my own childhood and how, for example, Disney movies, Colors of the Wind, Pocahontas, you know, we're obviously not talking about how inaccurate the movie is, but as far <laughs> as caring about the ecology and the environment, I was so curious about trees and nature and rivers and, you know, the landscape because that movie was highlighting the beauty of the colors of the wind. And I loved hummingbirds. You know, there's a really rich opportunity when kids are that young to do something similar to Disney, you know, in planting, like Elise said, the seed. And also I think about how I'm on a lot of climate crisis Instagrams and there's this acknowledgement of how climate doomerism is not helpful. It's important to be aware of what's going on. But at the same time, if people feel like there is no chance for us, that energy will go to being depressed about it versus being energized. And like I work in Los Angeles with tree people and a couple weekends in the month I go plant trees in the mountains or in the urban setting. And it's like both of these things, action and the arts, can work together. And, you know, I like that you say Shakespeare has cultural currency because he does. And theater is so good at cultivating hope. And we need that so badly in the climate movement these days. Mm-hmm. We need hope that the world can be a better place, that we can actually make an impact. And if we see that on stage, and if we can cultivate that sense of, action like you're mentioning then great we've done our job Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i think shakespeare is as we're talking about like this combination of the ability to create empathy and wonder for our natural world shakespeare is also i think fairly unique in terms of the theater landscape of at least the united states where there's not really um an outdoor mammoth festival or (laughs) (laughs) I just got to imagine that for a second. Shakespeare is unique in that there are outdoor venues that are usually dedicated to Shakespeare or they start as part of a Shakespeare festival and productions tie Shakespeare to the natural world around them. Whether or not the play itself is layering in nature, it is surrounded by it instead of going into a theater that is a no matter the size, a building that blocks out nature and having to bring it in. Shakespeare in the Parks is a awesome American pastime. And because of that, so many different Shakespeare communities are feeling the direct impacts of climate change as well. Mm-hmm. I know with San Francisco Shakespeare Festival, it's been a really big problem for us because of wildfire smoke. Mm-hmm. We've had to cancel mm-hmm. shows. But not only that, but heat index We've had Mm -hmm. to cancel shows because it's gotten too hot, which is not something that we really expect in San Francisco with that Mark Twain quote. Mm -hmm. The coldest winter I ever spent was a summer in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. But now we're having to cancel shows from heat and we're starting to evaluate, oh, maybe we should change when our season is, when our summer Shakespeare in the Park needs to be. And this is an issue facing a lot of Shakespeare companies because our venues are outside. So we Mm -hmm. do have to care. We have to care even more than the indoor theaters about our planet. And we have to start paying attention to the weather more than we had to in the past. Mm -hmm. I'm just like, yeah, ditto. Yeah, I know several. (laughs) (laughs) I know. uh, I'm like, we speak from like almost shared experience of knowing a few companies that are going through the same conversations 
and who have also seen their seasons impacted. I think for our listeners, one they may be most familiar with is that we've seen Oregon Shakespeare Festival, the largest Shakespeare festival in the country, also have to cancel shows midsummer because of fire season and because of the smoke that settles in the valley mm. where they're located mm. that they never had to do before. It's pretty devastating. And I hope we're in a different age of theater right now, just with all the impacts of COVID that we're starting to get a little bit more used to canceling shows or mm. what that means for a theater company, but it's still so mm. heartbreaking and so challenging. And so theater and Shakespeare theater in particular, it has this long history with being out the outdoors, you know, the wooden mm. O. How do we cultivate that? How do we preserve that relationship too? You know, that's a constant question that theaters are asking themselves now. You know, we don't have answers to necessarily. It's summer by summer right now. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting to see what different theaters around the country are doing. If you have any examples I mean, whether it's adjusting schedules or sharing resources and, you know, being more involved in their community and maybe not throwing away everything. Maybe they decide to stop ordering from Amazon for their costume pieces. Maybe just little steps, mm -hmm. you know, and I'm seeing that from different theater companies that I know that I'm involved with. There's one costumer who is just absolutely amazing and he made Edwardian gowns out of tablecloths from the thrift store. He's very talented. <laughs> I could not do that. But, you know, that opportunity is there, right? Of how right. can I use what I have near me rather than constantly ordering things or buying things when we can make do with what we have and we can also mm -hmm. share things. That's one thing that I know SF Shakes does where I work. We're sharing resources all the time and we're constantly reaching out to be like, hey, we have this. Who else needs this? And I think that's something that we should do more through the theater community of like, hey, oh, this company just did this show. We've got some costumes that might work for that. The problem I know for that is that oftentimes, especially now, we're, we're losing a lot of spaces. Mm -hmm. So storage spaces are smaller. But if there was a way that we shared storage space, that we all work together on that, maybe that would be helpful. Yeah, I like the idea of the collective nature of theater. And I also wonder, like, as an observer of young people who are so politically involved, like Greta Thunberg and all of the young people who are protesting and going to Congress and going to people in power and demanding these changes, what could a collective theater, a collective Shakespeare community do? Because at the end of the day, the individual changes are incredibly valuable. And at the same time, this is not related to Shakespeare, but we all know that the largest portion of damage to the planet is because of corporations and the wealthy, the elites. And so we are trying our best to do what we can. But at the end of the day, we are such a tiny portion of that. So is there this ability for Shakespeare practitioners and theater practitioners to like collectivize, you know, the solidarity of the community and combating what's going to turn our lovely summer theater festivals into possibly just a sliver of like when the weather is fine when the air is okay when there's no fires you know that's something that also like this conversation is sparking in me is like where's that collective action that we could all use because you know there's power in numbers mm -hmm. yeah and there's something really important about just talking with each other 
I mean, even uh, Shakespeare festivals, that's a thing in the Bay Area that all, happens all the time, too, is there's quite a few Bay Area Shakespeare festivals. And maybe we should just talk to each other about what what we're doing for the season. That's something <laughs> that we've all had to do is be like, for some reason, every Shakespeare company does the same play. Maybe we should think about that. I was just thinking, um, you're talking about Greta, that I should talk a little bit about how I got into this. So environmentalism has always been something really important to me that's near and dear to my heart. I grew up in Boulder, Colorado. I took environmental science in high school. I was really lucky that that was something I was granted. And we got to go into Rocky Mountain National Park and do, you know, plot studies on all these fun things. But I was a nerdy, nerdy theater kid, and I did not see how my two worlds would ever combine. And I felt really lost through most of my young adult life being like, ah, like, if I wasn't a theater actor, I would be a park ranger, you know, mm -hmm. or if I wasn't in the theater, I would go be a conservationist. And I was like, how do these two worlds combine? And so I've been looking for that answer for a really long time. And it wasn't until the pandemic, where we all had so much time on our hands and, you know, 14 contracts canceled and being like, okay, what am I going to do with my life and my time? And I started taking some online courses through CU Boulder. And at first, I, I took an environmental education class, and I felt really inspired, and it was really exciting because it was how to teach environmentalism. Mm -hmm. And me coming as a theater teacher, I was like, oh, I am so excited by this. I made a ridiculous puppet show. I had my whole family save our trash for a week, and we made puppets out of it, and I wrote a puppet show, and we all performed it, and it, I'm very proud of it. <laughs> but then I did a a graduate certificate in applied Shakespeare. And that was really what spurred more of my deep involvement in Shakespeare and the environment in particular, because I was seeing all these different programs of, you know, Shakespeare and veterans, Shakespeare working with autism and all these wonderful things that you could take Shakespeare and navigate it towards and use it for healing and use it for advocacy but then also knowing my love for the environment and for climate justice, being like, ah, this is an amazing opportunity also to use Shakespeare to help this large issue that affects us all. And right before the pandemic, I had the pleasure of meeting Katie Brokaw of Yosemite Shakespeare. And I fell in love with what she's doing mm -hmm. up there. Though, For those that don't know, Yosemite Shakespeare is, is a small little Shakespeare company that does basically um you know a week or so of shows in yosemite national park and in merced california and um, katie works for the university of california merced and so she gets a lot of students involvement up there and she gets the park rangers involved and they do productions of shakespeare wholly adapted you know very cut up and and melded together for environmental messaging. And I think that's perfect for the park because people are just walking through Curry Village and can stop and see a play. Mm -hmm. And arts in the park is a long held tradition as well. So here we are melding Shakespeare with Yosemite National Park. And that left me incredibly inspired. Mm -hmm. John Muir apparently, you know, don't quote me on this, but <laughs> I, I believe I read somewhere that he carried around Shakespeare with him on his mm -hmm. hikes as well. Just one reason his language is so beautiful, speaking about nature as well. Not that he couldn't write it without Shakespeare, but 
he was inspired by that work as well. And so we've got Shakespeare actually at the heart of our national parks in a lot of ways then too. So like we need to be combining, we've got this park love, this Shakespeare love, then why are we not caring about the environment in it? So as a resident artist with San Francisco Shakespeare Festival, I was able to bring that work to the company. And I was like, hey, y'all, I've started writing lesson plans on embodying Shakespeare's natural world. So I wrote a bunch of lesson plans that are more practical about getting students up and involved and experiencing Shakespeare with their bodies, as I think Shakespeare's meant to be experienced, but then also experiencing it through this natural lens. So taking language from As You Like It, from Midsummer, from Tempest, and having students put together different images and thoughts and scenes mm -hmm. together with that. And why you mentioning Greta reminded me of this is because one of the big pivotal pieces that is in that lesson plan is that students are handed a copy of one of Greta Thunberg's speeches and the forgeries of jealousy. And they're supposed to combine them together to create a movement piece that tells the story of the natural world through both Titania mm -hmm. and Greta's language. There's a really cool piece, too, that's free for anyone to watch online by a company called Parabola. And it's called This Distemperature. And they do five acts, much unto a Shakespeare play, of different pieces of Shakespeare's language uh, with different things that are happening in the climate now. So news articles and people's personal stories it's beautifully done. And that for me was a huge inspiration on working on the Midsummer that I just worked on, but also just an inspiration for me to put into the rest of my work as well as like, how do we combine what we're seeing in our world now with the language that Shakespeare gives us? That's powerful, especially like yeah. the, you know, all of our art should be informed by something. But of course, like you said earlier, you, you, you don't want to finger wag. You want people to feel, you want them to identify, you want them to empathize. And that's a very, I think that's a very powerful way to combine the two, you know, use Shakespeare as the vessel for the message. Yeah. There's so many plays that are, are so relevant to, I mean, we've talked about Midsummer, and I know y'all are exploring Midsummer, and it's personally my favorite play. I don't care how cliche it is. I think it's beautiful and I love it so much. But there are so many of his plays that you can use this messaging through. I mean, as you like it, obviously is a great one with the Forest mm -hmm. of Arden. And we can talk about that timber shortage that Shakespeare was experiencing. And we can talk about what that pastoral life meant and in their day, but also in our day that I think, you know, I believe I was listening to one of y'all's episode. You mentioned cottage core mm -hmm. with pastoral. Yep. Yeah. I was like, yep. Like what we can bring in the cottage core for our audiences. But I think the Tempest is a really amazing piece to explore in this because you're also getting the colonial aspect. Mm -hmm. I don't think you can do The Tempest without addressing that for a modern mm -hmm. audience mm -hmm. of being like, hey, here is this old white guy coming in and taking control of an island. We have seen that throughout history. It's not a great thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And at the same time, white people coming in and taking what we call America has destroyed this land. So there's that element. Mm -hmm. The two go hand in hand, I think, in The Tempest. I agree. Mm -hmm. You have to explore that. <laughs> I feel like you have to. You can't just do the play and not deal with these modern notions because our audience is coming at it with that in their mind. So like 
the Tempest is a great piece to explore because we also have much like Midsummer, the personification of nature through both Ariel and Caliban. But the island itself is an actual character. Mm -hmm. It's alive with music. Yeah, exactly. So like in, in some of my lesson plans, I pull on language from the Tempest, but I think that's a really rich piece to explore. I also really want to do a devised time in of Athens because I'm a Shakespeare nerd and I have a whole plan for it because <laughs> I think it's a great tool. If people wanted to see time in, you know, that one's a little harder sell than Midsummer to get people in the door. <laughs> what is one thing you wish more people knew when it comes to Shakespeare, climate change, and or the intersection of the two? This is... A wonderful and complex question, actually, that for climate change, there are certain things I wish. For Shakespeare, there are certain things I wish. And then for the two, there are certain things I wish. Yes. So for climate change, I wish more people knew that climate deniers were are actually a really small portion of people. We actually don't need to spend our time and resources trying to convince people that climate change is happening. The majority of the planet actually agrees with this. It's just, you know, the loud few and the difficulty that some of those loud few are people in positions of power. Mm -hmm. But that really, we just need to offer actionable items to people because there are a lot of people who care but don't know what to do and feel stuck, you know? Mm -hmm. So rather than being like, hey, this is happening, this is awful and terrible... We need to offer solutions to people going, hey, this is awful and terrible, but here are five things that you can do. You can write to your senators. You can call your local representatives, you know, even get more local than senators. Get involved with a local food bank. Do a local cleanup. You can you can put one of those together. There's a theater company that I work for. I'm on the advisory board for the Same Boat Theater Collective. And it is a lovely small company that does climate change theater. And this past fall, we organized storytelling cleanups where we told the story of our trash and we went to a certain area and it happened all over the world, which was really cool. We had one cleanup in the Bay Area. There was one in Argentina. There was one in India. And all these people on the same day went and told the story of their trash and cleaned up. You can do that. Just go somewhere and clean up. Or, you know, even just educating yourself, learning more, getting compost in your local area if you don't have it already, or maybe actually composting if you don't think about it that much. Or you could be crazy like me and invest in a composting <laughs> toilet, which is pretty exciting. <laughs> but you are incredibly correct about providing people actionable items for climate change and climate justice, because like during the summer, last summer, I was just like, telling my partner, I'm so upset with what's going on. And I just want to do something like I want to plant a gosh dang tree. And then I just Googled plant trees, Los Angeles. And there's a company that does this multiple days a week, they go to different areas. So you know, in some ways, it's also like there's a wealth of knowledge online. And there are people already doing these things. But what they need is more people also doing these things. And like the more you get involved in those things, the more you start to have a personal investment in the environment. And it becomes easier to advocate for climate justice because you're in a group of people who are also advocating for justice. So I think <laughs> that you're absolutely right about that. Um, action items. And that's something that we as theater companies can provide too. 
this is what I hope to do in my future productions. I wasn't able to do with Midsummer because they're going to schools all over the place and we don't have a program or mm -hmm. as many things to give out to the people. But in your program, write some action items, put them on the website, maybe even just on like a sandwich board outside of the theater, put some things, you know, people love to engage in an in intermission or, you know, before the show when they're grabbing their wine, if there's just something they can read, like we can provide those as a company that is a community center. Like a theater is a place where your community gathers and people who don't know each other spend time together in the same place using their collective imagination. That's where amazing and beautiful things happen. And some of those things can help save our planet. So like what I wish people knew about Shakespeare is that, well, one, you can change it around to say anything you want to really which is great, and so that you can put any and all the wonderful modern storytelling tricks and tips and things through it, and also you can tell the story of our planet. And it's really not that hard to do it with his language. So why not? Mm -hmm. But then also with that, Shakespeare's world was incredibly impacted by the climate as well. And he writes about it. Like I was mentioning the timber shortages, you know, in Merry Wives of Windsor. But like, even when you learn about Shakespeare, that's why Shakespeare had to take the wood from the theater and then go move mm -hmm. it across the river and then go build a theater out of the same wood because wood was too expensive right then. Mm -hmm. And they practically deforested all of England, you know. We can learn about what not to do through Shakespeare as well. And he talks about it in his plays because they're so relevant of their time and they're so political you know, all theater is political. But some people like to say it's not. Wow. Well, it always mm -hmm. is. No matter what. I think <laughs> yeah. they're wrong. Of course That's just they what. are. <laughs> like all stories are political because everything has a mm -hmm. message. Whether it's be happy and love each other, that's still mm -hmm. a message. And sadly, that's political these days. <laughs> Perhaps always. But it's also, a, it's also a source of joy to think, like, my message can make an impact. And, you know, even though we don't like to think of it as political because that seems so icky, it's still very powerful to say, like, what I have to say and what we think can land somewhere and make a difference. And so that's, you know, a bit of an encouraging thing. Like, why should you make theater to change the world? That's pretty powerful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I often say that good theater, for me, my definition, okay, personal choice is theater that shifts the audience's perspective, whatever that may mean. Mm -hmm. So the fact is that like theater is this liminal space where people come in, like you were saying, Sydney, they join together in community for generally like maybe 90 minutes to two hours. And then they leave and they go home. And I think that good theater is that they leave with a different perspective than they entered with, whether that's just they watched a musical and they had a really good time and they came in in a bad mood and then they're in a better mood that's great but we also have this opportunity to have those moments where someone might reframe how they look at the world when they exit yeah and the fact that theater companies are still censored by governments just shows mm -hmm. that the impact they have and i know sometimes people think theater is a dying art form but theater's been dying since the 20s, and it's still here, and it's still going to be around. It's been dying since the Greeks. like, <laughs> Yeah. 
We can say that, but also theater is the birthplace for many film artists as well. Mm-hmm. That's one reason there's so many Shakespeare references in TV. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's because a lot of them came from theater practices. So if you're going to inspire, you know, someone who's going to make a big blockbuster film, why not offer it? Like they're going to go see a Shakespeare play at some point mm-hmm. in their time. You're, you're going to impact someone. Yeah. I'm just thinking, and this is me being very anti-capitalist because that's who I am. <laughs> but in some ways, I think that much like the poor environment, which is being destroyed by capitalism, like point blank, theater is also injured by capitalism. Like people don't go to the theater, not because they don't want to see theater, but because who can buy the tickets, who can afford to see it regularly. You know, mm-hmm. that's just me being a leftist. Oh, no, you're, you're, you're speaking to the right people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's the one thing that that makes me really frustrated about theater is that we think of it as something that's for rich people because tickets are so expensive. So one thing I do love about working with SF Shakes is most of our programming is free. And we're oftentimes people's first introduction to Shakespeare Mm -hmm. and to theater in general, because we have free Shakespeare in the park. We have like a lot of our unhoused neighbors come see our show every summer because they know it's going to be there and they can come and enjoy a Shakespeare play. But how do we break that down, especially with theaters being hurt so badly right now? I'm actually really hopeful for right now as theater. Mm -hmm. We're seeing so much death, but through that, I'm like, I have a belief in this phoenix that's going to rise from its ashes and be like anti-capitalist and be a community center and be awesome and amazing. And (sighs) this is the internal optimist that lives deep within my soul. (laughs) Making me excited. I, li- I live for that future that you are envisioning. I know. I feel like we needed something horrible and traumatic and awful to happen to like kick theater in the butt and be like, okay, it is time. We are going to do something. We're going to use our voices. And that's why there are all these great theater events happening these days. Speaking of theater and climate change, there was this whole amazing thing that happened over the pandemic that was symboling in the Anthropocene. Mm-hmm. You know, this project that happened that theaters all over the world produce Cymbeline with statements about the environment and the world through it. And they're beautiful. They're all online. You can watch them all for free, as well as like lectures and talks if you're super nerdy, which, you know, I guess anyone (laughs) listening to this podcast is probably right on there and will listen to them. But you can go watch like five different productions around the world of Cymbeline that talk about exactly this. Mm hmm. It's really cool. Yeah. If anyone listening, for those of you who follow our Instagram, we follow the Cymbeline Project on Instagram, the podcast does, so you can easily find through our followers list their work through their Instagram. Ooh, and another thing that you should follow, which I am a proud, excited member, is the Earth Shakes Alliance. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's a wonderful conglomerate of Shakespeare companies or Shakespeare enthusiasts who take an oath to help the environment through their work. Um, I got SF Shakes involved and there's lots of different theater companies, but you can also just sign up as an individual. Yeah. So one last question. We kind of touched on climate change in theater and like what theaters can do, right? And we also talked about like actions that an individual can take. But if you could wave a magic wand and get all theaters... And maybe maybe you can say two or three if you can't choose. That's okay. Um, but if you could get them to do one thing that would have a positive impact on the fight for climate justice, what would that be? 
I wish I had a magic wand. I think the biggest thing for me would be to share resources. So last fall, I worked for Indiana University, and I just felt my heart drop into my stomach when I walked by the dumpster that had the sets and everything from their summer shows. Just everything just trashed. And it reminded me, oh, this is the common practice for theaters. Mm -hmm. On that, we just throw everything away. And they're beautiful pieces that spent, you know, hours and weeks being built to put together a show. And I don't think we should stop doing shows. And I don't think we should stop making them beautiful and works of art. But we need to share these resources. We need to not throw away all of this timber that was a shortage, you know, Mm -hmm. back in Shakespeare's day and isn't doing too great right now either. That we should keep them, repurpose them, share them with other theater companies, not just sets, but costumes and everything. There's something about the community aspect like we're talking about before that there's no reason we can't do that other than space. Mm -hmm. And so if we work together, we can get that space. Yeah. That's what I would wish. I would say yes to that. And I think that theaters can go a step further to reduce that waste. We want, yes, reuse, but it doesn't necessarily have to go to other theaters. It can also be given to community. Exactly. Yes. The production of Midsummer that I worked on this summer required a lot of faux flowers, which was the best thing for the environment that they were working in and what they needed to do. But what do you do with so much plastic and like faux flowers afterwards? Well, there's so many buy nothing groups on the internet reaching out to local community centers. They were able to donate a bunch to a local art center who could reuse them and also to people who were planning weddings and who wanted to have faux foliage in their wedding. So there's also options for theaters to explore outside of just theater to theater. There are people who need timber, need lumber, and can't afford it in the community mm-hmm. or who could use that paint that the theater's not going to use or could use that costume. You know, theaters, they can use it as a fundraising opportunity of a garage sale for those costumes that are not going to be used anymore. I've seen theaters do that. So I would also say reusing, sharing economy can go beyond the theater itself or the theater community. Yes. And what a wonderful way to get to know your community as well and get involved with other groups of people that are, you know, not just audience members, but human beings in your area. Mm -hmm. And I think theaters should be telling the stories that their community needs. So that's a great way to learn what your community needs. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's my big magic one ask. The other would be to just use our platform for good, (laughs) which I think a lot of theater communities work towards, but to not shy away from it and to be that safe haven, not just for people, but for our world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think that's a lovely note to end it on. So thank you so much, Sydney. I came away from our conversation with Sydney feeling very inspired about the role that theater can play in the climate justice movement. How about you? I did as well. I also started thinking a lot about like not only the shows that we put on stage, but also the 
place that theater as a as a form of leadership can take when it comes to the more boring political elements, but the collective mobilization mm -hmm. of theater. When you think about it, theaters, especially those that do Shakespeare, Shakespeare in the Park, any outdoor Shakespeare festival, is directly impacted mm -hmm. by what's going on in the, the climate justice world. Mm -hmm. And so I think it'd be really neat for there to be more mobilization of theater companies, more people going to their legislators, their congresspeople, you know, and and making right. it a community fight. You know, I think theaters are great places to right. to center community, but we need to have leadership there that's going to do that. Right. And I think it's also, you know, it can benefit the theater to do these things. You know, we've talked about how reducing waste saves money somewhere downstream. By reusing, we don't have to buy again. Mm -hmm. We don't have to overconsume. And I think that like when Sydney was talking about the practice that she encountered where the department was just throwing away sets and timber is so expensive right now mm -hmm. because of deforestation right. right that's why they would save money for a future production by reusing when we were growing up there was the recycle reduce reuse campaign and i know in recent years reduce reuse recycle has been inverted mm -hmm. a little bit if you haven't heard those three r's in a while that first we should be reducing, so reducing our overall consumption of goods. Then we should be reusing what we have before buying new. And then we should be recycling when it comes time for that thing's life to end, to reduce waste, right? Mm -hmm. Which is, you know, something that an individual can do and an organization can do. In the United States, there's the Broadway Green Alliance that specifically works with Broadway theaters to increase their sustainability mm -hmm. practices. But even on a small level, local theaters, regional theaters can become, like you said, a place in their community where sustainability is at the forefront. That can even look like, you know, running an e-waste mm -hmm. recycling campaign. You know, there's uh, organizations such as e-waste for good that in the United States help Nonprofit organizations, which the majority of regional theaters and community theaters are, mm -hmm. fundraise. The theater is the place where people bring their their e-waste recycling, which is some of the most difficult material to mm -hmm. recycle. It gets recycled. And then uh, the theater actually makes money off the fundraiser. And theater is always in need of money. Theater is always in need of money. So it also like doing good by the earth can also have a double impact for an mm -hmm. organization. So it's like finding organizations like that, finding organizations or finding organizations like we discussed that you can partner with to give away what you're not going to be using anymore and what you what you cannot store. Right. And if those orgs don't exist in your area, I'm sure if you are passionate about this and have experience in theater, if you reach out and say, hey, how did you do this? Then there will be mm -hmm. there's a wealth of knowledge about how to get more of these sustainability campaigns and initiatives going. But we need normal people, regular people yeah. to start standing up and doing it. Just like putting in the time, you know, organize with your friends and try to help each other offset mm -hmm. the work. It can be such a collective task. Yeah. And that's what theater is. Yeah. And then on an individual level, you know, I don't think anyone should feel guilt about what they're not able to do. It's all about what we can do. And 
you'll also hear climate justice advocates say, think globally, act locally. Mm -hmm. And it really starts with what is in your sphere of influence. Mm -hmm. And while the major polluters, the major offenders of our planet are large corporations Mm -hmm. and governments, you know, comparatively, an individual's impact seems very small. Every little bit does help, whether that's planting a tree or shopping locally, shopping at a farmer's market, Mm -hmm. supporting local agriculture. Every little bit does help. Yes. And on a political level, if you know there's a city council meeting and they're going to be talking about funding a power plant that uses natural gas instead of going for a solar option, a Mm -hmm. green option, mark it in your calendar to spend you know, two, three hours of that one evening, that one month, calling into council and putting the pressure on with your voice. Yeah. Or if you know people who organize and march or organize and go door to door or go to farmer's markets and, you know, hand out leaflets or whatever materials they're handing out, like that stuff does help as well. Right. And I think too, you know, you you talked about local politics, like that is so impactful to get involved in. Local politics actually does a lot and can have a really big impact where, you know, looking for an entire country to shift policy can be more difficult than a city or a town. And it can be, you know, working towards funding your recycling center so that they can process more different types of plastic Mm -hmm. or instituting a urban composting program. Mm Those are things that your local politicians can do. And as their constituent, you can use your voice and your voting choice and your dollar to support those things. Yep. And your body and your voice. And I just emphasize this because in my own personal experience, I have a city council that has funded dirty energy. And sometimes sometimes it's very difficult because there can be a lot of pressure from advocates for environmentally friendly options. And there's still so much incentive for politicians to go with, you know, dirty Mm -hmm. options because there's more money in it or whatever the case is. So my own personal experience is don't put your faith in your politicians, put your faith in your community, the people that you're building alongside. Mm -hmm. And that is so great. If you want some inspiration for that, I'm going to again recommend Climate Justice by Mary Robinson because these stories all describe how a a person learned about climate change and activated within their community and within their sphere of influence. And it's really inspiring to see what individuals can do in this. Yes. And I also have a recommendation. Uh, If you are interested in learning more about how there are parts of the world that are implementing green options and making solutions for the climate that are fruitful. Um, I recommend a, it's a very short book, but it's called Climate Solutions Beyond Capitalism by Tina Landis. And, you know, Elise's book is on what a person can do to inspire their community. And then this book is seeing the outcomes of some of these initiatives and how they are possible. And with that, thank you for listening. Go out and do good. To wrap up this episode on Shakespeare and climate change, 
we want to succinctly provide next steps for listeners like you and mention actions that we forgot in conversation. If the state of the climate upsets you, join the fight for the planet. First, join a national or local movement or organization focused on climate solutions. Someone needs to put pressure on politicians and corporations. Join folks who are already doing that. What they need is you. There is power in numbers. Second, demand your local government votes for renewable energy. You can join a march, protest, call into city council, or sign petitions in person or online. Lastly, be sure to follow the guidance of Indigenous activists. Indigenous people have been stewarding the land long before European colonizers. Follow their lead and support their movements. On an individual level, plant native trees and plants. Join community cleanups. Plan or join community projects. Stop using single-use plastic. Buy secondhand. Reuse and repair, then recycle. Share and donate resources. Reduce your meat and dairy intake. Educate yourself and others. And lastly, encourage your friends to join whenever you take action. Like Elise said in conversation, think globally and act locally. I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. This is Shakespeare Anyone? Thank you so much for listening to Shakespeare Anyone. Works referenced in this episode are available in the episode description. Our theme music is Never Ending Minute by Sounds Like Sander. If you would like to support us, it would help us out if you would hit the subscribe button, like us, leave a comment, write a review, share us on social media, tell a friend about us, all the things. We'd appreciate it. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash ShakespeareAnyone. Patreon patrons get access to exclusive bonus content throughout the year. The link is also in the episode description. For more, you can visit our website, ShakespeareAnyone.com, follow us on Instagram at ShakespeareAnyonePod, or Twitter at ShakespeareAnyone. For Twitter, that's Shakespeare, any, and the number one. Every other platform is spelled out like the name of the podcast. Now, because you listened all the way to the end of the credits, here's a completely random Shakespeare quote for you. As You Like It, Act 2, Scene 7, said by Jacquees. Invest me in my motley, give me leave to speak my mind, and I will through and through cleanse the foul body of the infected world if they will patiently receive my medicine.